Again, we come to the Gospel of Matthew, and I would encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 24. This is now the eighth Sunday that we have been examining the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, a detailed examination of impending judgment upon the earth and all who dwell upon it, frankly, a sobering harbinger of eternal hell. It's really sad that even though this is what I have entitled Christ's greatest prophetic discourse, you will probably not hear one in a thousand churches that will ever even mention it these days. It is a topic of impending judgment, and therefore it is not seeker-sensitive. And obviously the Lord didn't understand the principles of seeker-sensitive churches. His great love for sinners utterly eclipsed any selfish ambition to attract a crowd. And thus he preached repentance. He preached that people should place their faith in him and flee from the wrath to come. And so this is a merciful warning that we are studying. May I remind you that in his first coming, as we read earlier in the service, Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But friends, this will not be the case in his second coming. In his second coming, he does come to judge the world. And the prophetic warnings of impending judgment have always been God's way of arousing men from their slumber of sin. And I must say that as a pastor, I cannot stand before you and merely tickle your ears with flattery and humor, careful somehow not to disturb people from a fool's paradise, a paradise where you just kind of live for today with no concern about tomorrow. I cannot do that and then watch people slowly slip into the flames of hell without warning. So the truth is, dear friends, that Jesus is coming. He's coming again someday. The same Jesus that is meek and lowly is also the eternal judge that is enraged and holy. And he is coming again. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27 tells us that it is appointed for men to die once and after this the judgment. Obviously, therefore, it's important for us to preach about days of judgment. In Acts 10.42, we read that the Lord Jesus has been ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. And Jesus said himself in John 5.22, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. And later on in verse 27, he says, And has given him authority to execute judgment. Dear friends, on, on that day, that day of judgment, no one will deny the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. That debate will be over once and for all. And in fact, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. He will return someday. He says that he will even judge all the nations in Matthew 25 Verse 32, as he has done down through history, 
The Apostle Paul even describes a day in Romans 2.16 when God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that? Even the secrets of men will be judged, especially those of the unredeemed. You see, friends, we must remember that no sin will ever go unpunished. Even those pandered in the secret caverns of one's imagination. Because what may be considered secret to us is not secret to him. For in fact, every sin that is ever committed, whether private or public, was perpetrated in the presence of an omnipresent and omniscient God. And every monstrous crime that was ever committed in the shadows will someday be exposed in the full light of his glory at the great white throne judgment for those who have not placed their faith in him. Everyone who has rejected Christ will someday be raised from the dead, the Bible teaches, and they will be given a body that is suited for hell. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13, we read that the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works. These are the prophecies of impending judgment for those who have rejected Christ. And like lasers, the penetrating eyes of omniscient holiness will someday peer into the very soul of every heart and it will unmask every hypocrite and he will disclose every secret evil for as Hebrews 4:13 says there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do Someday, dear friends, all the lies, all the vulgarity, all of the arrogance, all of the insolence, all of the immorality, all of it will be brandished in the full blaze of divine disclosure. In fact, Jesus has said in Matthew 12:36 that every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. And the greatest tragedy that burdens my heart is many will who think they belong to him will also stand before him realizing that they had deceived themselves for Jesus said in Matthew 7 and verse 22 many will say to me in that day referring to the day of judgment Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness. And then, after the righteous sentence has been issued, according to verse 42 of Matthew 13, he will cast them into the furnace of fire, and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. But dear friends, these things are not pleasant, but they are real, they are true. And only a fool would say differently. But on a positive note, we serve a merciful and loving Savior who has offered grace and mercy to all who will place their faith in him. He has paid the penalty for our sins and he has given us the gospel of grace whereby men can be saved. And we have a, a Savior who 
still patiently tarries with a merciful invitation to come unto him for forgiveness. Charles Spurgeon once said many years ago, and I quote, The Lord keeps the scaffold standing till he hath built up the fabric of his church. Not yet are the elect all called out from among the guilty sons of men. Not yet are all the redeemed with blood redeemed with power and brought forth out of the corruption of the age into the holiness in which they will walk with God. Therefore, the Lord waiteth for a while, but do not deceive yourselves. The great day of his wrath cometh on apace and your days of reprieve are numbered. So, friends, this morning we return once again to Christ's greatest prophetic discourse. And my prayer is that this will awaken sinners from the slumber of disbelief and also awaken saints from the slumber of apathy. And as a footnote, I must say that I grieve to see so many who disregard the power and the purpose of the prophetic scriptures saying that they were merely metaphor and that all of the prophecies were basically fulfilled back in A.D. 70. Dear friends, quite the contrary. He has given us his prophetic word to confirm his promises as we look at all of the prophecies that have been fulfilled literally, but also to arouse sinners by those prophecies that will be fulfilled. And so that is our prayer this morning. Now, we return to Matthew 24, where Jesus has given evidence again of his mercy by answering the questions of the disciples regarding the nature and the duration of Israel's desolation. He has told them about the sign of his coming. He has provided detailed descriptions of the final pre-kingdom judgments at the end of the age, that time when the mediatorial kingdom of the Old Testament prophecies will be finally realized, when the laws of the kingdom will be written on the hearts of its citizens, and the Messiah King will be the one to reinforce them. And this will be a time when the royal blessings once promised to the nation Israel will finally be poured out upon her, when the fullness of the Gentiles will finally be over, when Israel's sufferings will have ceased, when her sentence of divine judgment will finally be served and her spiritual eyes opened to the one whom they have pierced and has promised in Romans 11, verse 26, it will be the time when all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, He will remove ungodliness from Jacob, and this my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, while Jesus has provided unmistakable warnings indicating he is coming, he states in verse 36 here in Matthew 24, and this is where we'll begin this morning. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father alone. You see, may I remind you again that during his incarnation, he voluntarily and he temporarily restricted certain aspects of his divinity, including the specific moment of his future arrival. But he did know the signs that would lead up to that time. Now, can you imagine 
what it would be like in our world today if we knew specifically the date when Jesus would return. If he had said, you know, on March 13th, 2007, at 7 o'clock in the morning, I will return to this earth. Can you imagine what would go on? Certainly evangelism would lose its sense of urgency because procrastination would rule the day. Christians would no longer live in the light of his imminent return. We, I think, would be kind of like my grandchildren at times. If they know that mommy or grandparents are somewhere gone for a little while, then they don't worry about having to look for them as they get into things they shouldn't. But if they know that at any second, Papa might come around that door, then they're always looking and it tends to curtail some of the activities of a more devious nature. The same is true with the church. Dear friends, living in light of Christ's return is a powerful motivation for holy living. In fact, in 1 John 3, verse 3, we read that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And if you knew exactly what the date would be, certainly unbelievers would postpone their conversion. Those that would want to someday place their faith in Christ. Many would say, well, you know, I want to enjoy all the pleasures I possibly can before submitting to Christ. And of course, such an attitude of shallow conviction and hardness of heart would be indicative of someone that would never be saved in the first place. But certainly that would be the mindset. Now, I might also add that I believe Jesus knows precisely when he is returning now, now that he's back sitting at the right hand of the Father, because in Matthew 28:18 we read that all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. So I think it's reasonable to assume he knows when he's coming now. But here, Jesus emphasizes that no one knows the time of his return. And this reinforces, my friends, the concept that we as a people need to be watchful and prepared and faithful. And these are the very attitudes that he now underscores for the generation that will live during that day, during the time of the tribulation. And I believe it also has application for those of us awaiting the rapture of the church as well. And what we see here is that he illustrates three attitudes in three analogies, beginning in verse 37 through 51. And this breaks down nicely into a, a nice little outline, three simple concepts that we'll look at this morning, especially for those of that day. But even for us, we are to be alert, we're to be ready, and we're to be faithful and sensible. Alert, ready, and faithful and sensible. First of all, he emphasizes the concept of being alert. And you might could even think of it this way, the idea of being sober, the idea of being reasonable, the idea of being serious and solemn about the reality that he's coming again. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 37. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand. Until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Friends, we could characterize the days of Noah as we look back and read about them in the book of Genesis as days of granite indifference to the faithful preaching 
of impending judgment. The people of that day, as of today, and certainly in the days right before the Lord comes, and that could be very, very soon, the people are blinded by their lusts. And in that day, they scoffed at Noah. And it's interesting, as you read the text, you read that he preached for 120 years while he built the ark. And for 120 years, he was the laughing stock of the world. Those of us who preach the gospel today, especially the second return of Christ, know exactly what that feels like to be the laughing stock of the world. People blinded by their lusts. They were eating, Jesus says, and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they went about life as usual, utterly apathetic towards the holiness of God and the merciful warning that God was giving them through his servant. And they didn't understand, verse 39, until the flood came and took them away. Well, you know, as you think about it, even today, nothing has changed very much. Think about it. If the world refuses to acknowledge God as creator, they will also refuse to believe in him as judge. And is it any wonder that the world considers those who believe in the second coming of Christ as the lunatic fringe of religion? Think of the parallels even now in our culture with the days of Noah and how much worse it will be as things get worse and worse just before the Lord comes. First of all, when I think of our culture, we live in probably the most shallow and superficial culture that has ever existed. People simply do not take God and his word seriously. There's no sense of alertness here, despite the faithful witness on the radio, books, and so on. Think about it. Adults today have, for the most part, been raised on television and video games, sporting events, vulgar music, sound bites, and cliffs notes. Naturally, this all bleeds over into the church where preaching must be short. It must be entertaining. People are incapable, for the most part, at least they think they are, of deep thought. So you have to kind of give them bumper stickers in between a few jokes. And generations of people now have been raised on what I call cotton candy Christianity with a steady diet of superficial kind of junk food sermonettes for Christianettes. And therefore, people no longer have a hunger for the deep things of God. And as a result, people do not understand Bible doctrine. And if you don't understand Bible doctrine, you'll have no discernment. If you have no discernment, you will not grow in Christ. And if you do not grow in Christ, you will have no power in your life. And this, for the most part, describes much of what is called the church today. And as you think about it, truth really doesn't matter anymore because the thought is that everybody's got their own truth and we need to be tolerant of everybody's truth. Even if it differs with mine, it's your truth. And since nobody can really know the truth, why listen to any in-depth Bible study? And as a result, people are incapable today of debating even with the most simplistic philosophies of man. Seminaries today in many places are doing away with courses in theology and replacing them with courses in marketing. Because after all, it's important to learn how to attract a crowd. 
But dear friends, there's a huge difference between a church and a crowd. And then Christian publishing comes along and caters to this kind of superficiality by publishing trite self-help books and pop psychology and all of these books filled with kind of the theological ebonics of our day. Talking about the new smiley face Jesus of our culture. You see this in books like many of the bestsellers. I've talked about the prayer of Jabez, the purpose driven life and so on. And then, of course, contemporary Christian music comes along and trivializes the holiness of God even more and puts it all to music. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush because there are songs and books and churches that certainly do preach the truth and we rejoice in that. But friends, that is becoming increasingly more rare. And as a result, we have churches that are ostensibly Christian, but they really have no fear of God. There, there, there's no passionate pursuit of, of personal holiness. There, there's really no grasp of, of, of the deep, rich things of Bible theology. And again, as I say, there's no discernment. And I fear that in many cases, when Jesus does return, many of those folks will be like those in the days of Noah that did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. Well, certainly this will be the prevailing mindset during the tribulation. During the tribulation, there will be a combination of superficial religionists of every imaginable stripe. And we're seeing that even today. Combined with the Howard Stern Bulgarians who hate God and mock his word. Now think about it as we've studied the scriptures, especially in light of what will happen during the time of the tribulation. With the church gone and the restraint of the Holy Spirit now removed, the Antichrist will be allowed to wreak havoc upon the world as he reigns for 42 months. And certainly as a result, mankind with all of his sinful passions will be released and the world will continue in a moral freefall that we're already seeing today. It will be like the days of Noah. In fact, if we go back to Genesis chapter 6, especially in verse 5, we read about the people of that day. There, God says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In the Hebrew, the idea of the intents of the thoughts of the hearts, it could be translated the imaginations. In other words, in those in those days, even their imaginations, all of their thought life was dominated by constant wickedness. Well, we know that during the tribulation, during those seven years that will be dominated by false religions, we will see much of the same thing because these religions will give license to every imaginable form of immorality and vice. And again, we see the precursors of that today. And even today, we see the rise of the great harlot church that we read about, especially in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 the great harlot church of the ecumenical movement. We read about the Laodicean apostasy of neo-evangelicalism that we see today. 
And by the way, I have to say that I rejoice in this precious church and in, in you people and and many churches around the world like this church, because for you, apostasy is, is very foreign. You will not stand for it. My friend, Dr. H.T. Spence, who has spoken here in this place, recently wrote something that I felt worthy of quoting to you. Here's what he has to say, quote, While there is a growing wholesale falling away in the earthly church and its movements, there is a remnant of Christians who know the anointing of the Spirit of God for personal living and preaching, for maturing and sound doctrine, for fruit of the Spirit and character, for prayer, for discernment into the conditions of our times, and for patience in waiting for the catching away of Christ's bride. He also said, and I quote, at this time in history, four burdens must consistently be evident in every true remnant preacher. One, the existence of the apostasy. Two, the urgency of the second coming of Christ. Three, the need of daily communion with God. And four, the call to the remnant for revival unto the glorious Christ. If amidst his declaration of the gospel, these four areas are not a regular cry from his preaching heart, then he has capitulated to the neo-Christianity of his times, end quote. Well, friends, while we give God all the glory for his severe mercy and grace in the lives of the redeemed remnant who faithfully await him, we also know that such is an anomaly in the world today. And the Bible is clear that just before the Lord returns, the whoredom of satanic deception and false religion will dominate the world. Now think about it. Despite the supernatural gospel presentation during the time of the tribulation of the 144,000, the, the stunning conversion of Israel... Uh, the two witnesses, the angel in heaven and so on, combined with all of the horrific plagues wreaking havoc on mankind during the tribulation period, man will still remain committed to his unbelief, to his selfish agenda. In fact, we read in Revelation 9, after describing the sixth trumpet judgment that kills a third of mankind, the Holy Spirit speaks through the apostle the inspired apostle in verses 20 through 21. And he graphically describes the hardness of hearts in that day. Here's what he says it will be like. And the rest of mankind, in other words, the rest left alive, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Can you imagine that? What a testimony to the depravity of man. Because, dear friends, as we think about it, mankind has always preferred self over God. Man has always preferred sin over righteousness. Frankly, many prefer hell over holiness. And in that day, the wickedness will be so great as to cause blasphemers to continue to shake their puny little fist in God's face, even as they fall into the flames. 
that they have been thrown into. But Jesus then goes on to illustrate what will happen when, shall we say, the waters of judgment will envelop those who disregard his warnings. In verses 40 and 41, he says, Then there shall be two men in the field, and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. By the way, we have a similar description in Matthew 25, a description of divine separation between the sheep and the goats, the sheep representing the redeemed and the goats, the unredeemed. And this helps us understand what Jesus is saying here in verses 40 and 41. And certainly the context would also help us understand that what he's describing here is not the rapture of the church. He's describing judgment. One will be taken into judgment and another will be left to enter the millennial kingdom. And so in verse 42, he says, therefore, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But not only are they to be alert, but the second analogy really illustrates another very important attitude for that generation as well as for ours. We are to, secondly, be ready. Notice verses 43 through 44. He says, But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. When I was thinking about this text, I was thinking about that time on 9-11 when the United States was attacked by the Islamists. You know, if we had known that they were coming, we would have been ready. But obviously, we didn't know. And they still want to attack us, and we don't know when. If we did, we would be ready. So what must we do? We must be ready all the time. And that's exactly the idea here. Like a thief that will break into a house that would come unexpectedly, at a time that you would never know, because certainly a thief would never announce, hey, I'm going to break into your house tonight. Since we don't know the exact time that the Son of Man will come, we need to be ready. That's the point. And people might say, well, well, well how? How, how? How do you be ready? How, how do you prepare yourself for this? Well, the idea is to be spiritually prepared. You need to be saved. You need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Ready to meet Jesus as your Savior, not as your judge. Jesus gave a similar warning in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. He says, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps alight and be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master shall find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. You know, everyone here in this room today and everyone within the sound of my voice could potentially meet Jesus today. You realize that, I hope. Certainly, if death were to come, you would... As a believer, go into his presence, absent from the body, you're present with the Lord, and it would be a time of great joy. But if you're not a believer, if you really do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, 
then this would be a horrible day, the day of your death, because your spirit would immediately go to hell to await the final judgment. But also, for all of us who know Christ, I believe that we could be raptured at any time. We could meet him at that time, and then others might be left, and maybe perchance they might come to a saving knowledge during the time of the tribulation. Certainly many will. And then they will see him ultimately at the second coming, unless they were, unless they died before or were martyred. But the point is, dear friends, we must all be ready. We must be sober, realizing that he could come at any time. But the Lord also adds something here. He says that we are to be thirdly faithful and sensible. Notice beginning in verse 45. He says, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Now, the imagery here is quite obvious. A master has two kinds of slaves. The master certainly would be analogous to, to God. Two kinds of slaves. One slave would be the faithful, sensible slave, and that would be the slave that would represent believers. And then the evil slave representing unbelievers. Now think about this with me for a moment. All true believers, all of you who know and love Christ, are to be faithful and sensible servants of the Master until He comes. I don't think we would argue that. Think about this. We have all been given a sacred trust to manage the household of God illustrative of, of all that the Master possesses. Not just the church, but also our families and everything else that we come in contact, contact with. And as I was thinking about it, here's just a few of the things that we're responsible to do as faithful, sensible slaves. And certainly these are the types of the things that the Lord wants to see us doing when He comes. We are to love the Lord our God, God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, Right? And to love our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. The Master has told us that we are to deny ourselves and follow Christ, willing to even go to our death by taking up our cross daily. In Luke chapter 10, we're told, uh, Jesus says, that the number one priority in the Christian life is to avail ourselves to every opportunity to be taught the Word of God and to humble ourselves before it. We are to long for the sincere milk of the word like newborn babes longs for the mother's milk. We are told that we are to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. 
We're told that uh, as servants, we are to discipline ourselves for the sake of godliness. We're told that we are to pray without ceasing. We are to be filled with the Spirit. We are to come out and be separate from the world. The list goes on and on. We are to fulfill the great commission to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that the Lord has commanded. We're told that we're not to forsake the assembling together of the saints. We're told that we are to discover and develop our spiritual gifts in the context of of the church so that we can put the Holy Spirit on display and minister to the body. These are not options, dear friends. These are commands. This is what the master has told us to do. We are to worship the Lord in the joyful giving of our offerings in the church. We have responsibility, husbands and our families, right? We are to love and to lead and to protect our wives. And wives are to love and to submit to their husbands. We are as parents to raise our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And on and on it goes. You see, the point is, every Christian has stewardship responsibilities that the master expects us to be carrying out. And this would be indicative of people that are faithful and sensible. That's why in verse 46 he says, Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Well, likewise, the evil slave, people that do not know Christ, whether they want to acknowledge it or not, they have a responsibility before God as well. They have a stewardship responsibility. And, of course, the first responsibility they have is to repent and be reconciled to God through faith in Christ so that they, too, will love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and their neighbor as much as they love themselves. But most people refuse to do this, saying in their heart, my master is not coming for a long time. And, of course, many say that there is no master and I'm my own master. But many will say, you know, I've got plenty of time to indulge my my flesh. I've got time to do my own thing. I don't I don't really care about serving and honoring my master. So I'll just kind of worry about that later. And, of course, many suppress the truth about God and who he is and their unrighteousness, as Romans one tells us. And Jesus illustrates the depth of this kind of wickedness in verse 49. He says, uh, these slaves will be the ones that will begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. In other words, there's no self-control. You, you, you just go after anything you want in your own life. Well, certainly this is the picture of the unbelieving world even today. And it's going to get worse before Jesus comes, not better. Hold your finger there in Matthew 24. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We get an idea of the worsening condition of the world before Jesus comes. And by the way, this is yet another refutation of post-millennial theology of dominion theology that believes that somehow we can just, you know, get our kids educated enough and the church is going to get good enough and we can elect enough, as I say, Republicans to finally turn the world around so that we can hand the kingdom over to God and that things are ultimately going to get better and better. That's not what I read in my Bible. 
Notice what it says in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. By the way, the term difficult in the original language could be translated perilous. It could be translated savage. In fact, in Matthew 8, we read of the um, demon-possessed man, and this same term is used, that he was a savage man. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult, savage, perilous times will come. And also the word times. It's the idea of the accumulation of, of epics, of, of deceptive epics. In other words, there's going to be layer upon layer upon layer upon layer upon layer over generations and generations of deception. In not just religious circles, but in philosophical circles, in scientific circles, and so on. And we see that. I mean, just think of the whole lie of evolutionary theory. So, these times are going to come. And then there's a description here that the Holy Spirit gives us. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You know, sadly, my friends, this sounds a whole lot like Congress and the Senate. In verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, we are to avoid such men as these. Well, the tragic truth is simply this. Back to Matthew 24 and verse 50. The master of this kind of slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and, and shall cut him in pieces. That's a euphemism for, for death. And then he says, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Now, this last phrase is, is interesting, isn't it? It really denotes two kinds of unbelievers that will exist just before Jesus returns. And, of course, we've seen them down through redemptive history. Two types of unbelievers. One will be the defiant Christ-haters. These are the ones that are defiant in their public rejection of the person and the work of Christ, the, the atheists, the agnostics, the, the proud intellectuals that dominate our colleges and universities and many seminaries that mock his word and ridicule all who love him and so on. This would also include all of the false religions of the world today that deny the deity of Christ and worship some phony God that they have contrived that does not exist. But there's another type of unbeliever. This is the most dangerous kind. It's the hypocrite. Those who think they worship God and worship Christ, but do not. Again, as we read in 2 Timothy 3.5, they hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. These will be the apostates, again, who, who claim to be worshipers of Christ, claim to be his servants, but many have created their own standards of righteousness, not his. They're worshiping a Jesus of their own making. They're pursuing their own agenda, not his agenda. And of course, we see 
elements of that and the liberal churches of today, the, the quasi-Christian churches, the kind of the mystical, all of the, um, the prosperity theology, faith healer, all of this crazy stuff that you see out there today. And certainly this is indicative also of the mongrel church, as I call it, that has invaded fundamental evangelicalism. You see that in certain aspects of the seeker-sensitive movement and the emergent church and some of these things. These are the ones I fear, my friends, that Jesus described in Matthew 7.21, where He says that not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, well, who will enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, He goes on and He says, but He who does the will of My Father So, Jesus warns that the defiant Christ-haters are going to be assigned a place someday with the hypocrites, which is interesting, isn't it? It demonstrates that the hypocrite that teaches Sunday school and sings in the choir and even fills a pulpit is just as offensive to God as the atheist, as the, as I said earlier, the Howard Stern, Bulgarian type that we see today. And when I think of this fast approaching consummation of man's wicked reign on earth, I'm reminded of that text in Luke 18 and and, and verse 8. And I, I often think about this. And there you have Jesus kind of asking a pensive question, and obviously he knows the answer. You remember in that text, he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? And you know, the answer is, yes, there will be some, and we read this in other passages, but very little true saving faith. There's only going to be a remnant. That's the point. When he returns, the world will be dominated by calloused unbelief, as well as sophisticated religious hypocrisy. Now, folks, to make this real personal and practical, as we come to the end of this great study, again, eight sermons now on Matthew 24, I have to ask you a question. Are you alert? Are you ready? Are you a faithful and sensible slave of the Master? I fear that some are not. For some that I know, I question if you even know Christ. It's a burden of mine and of every pastor who loves his flock. You know who you are. You are those who feel as though you're a stranger to God. As you think about God and all that He is supposed to be to you, you realize that somehow there's been a mysterious separation that has occurred. For whatever reason, the early days of enjoying Him and and just being excited about your faith, those days don't exist anymore. For some, as you think about it, it's that, that longing to be in His presence, that longing to be with His people, that, that longing that maybe you once had to, to know the Scriptures and 
and, and just those times of refreshment. You, you know, maybe, I hope you know, those times when somehow the Spirit of God just rushed over your soul and you were just broken with the Word that you've read and it changed your life. Somehow those times are gone. They're past. Oh, you still, in your mind, claim that you believe in Christ and maybe you truly do belong to the redeemed, but there's no real excitement there. You kind of go through the motions of churchianity. Some show up at church regularly, some occasionally. There's always five or six other things that seem to be a little bit more important. But if you're really honest, you're not living in light of His glorious return. It never goes through your mind, really. You're not alert. You're not ready. You're not faithful. You're not sensible. As you look at your life, there's really no spiritual fruit on the vine. Your Christian life is barren. It's boring. And for some, it's bereft of spiritual blessing. My friend, if that is you, first of all, you want to examine your heart to make sure that you truly know Christ. But for many, you truly are born again. But for whatever reason, the locusts of sin have somehow devoured your joy and your assurance and your blessing. And beloved, you're in need of genuine revival. Now, I'm not talking about the revivals that we see in our southern culture. I'm not talking about evangelistic revivals that are many times so superficial and so distorted. But folks, I'm talking about those of you who need a revival in your soul. This is a revival for believers. Something needs to happen. So that the excitement returns, the joy of your salvation returns. And I might add that this will never happen until you get serious with God. It will never happen until you get serious with where you stand before God right now. Oh, you can hear all of this about eschatology. You can even know your doctrine, your theology. You can be a part of the church and you can still be dry as a bone when it comes to really living a life of Christ and being nourished by His Word. And friends, if that is you, this revival will only come when you get serious about confessing your sins, whatever they might be. Specifically, not this general vague stuff. Oh God, forgive me for being a carnal Christian. That's very different than saying, God, forgive me for the way that I interrupt my husband every time he speaks. God, forgive me for my laxity in being disciplined with the word. God, forgive me that I haven't studied your word on my own and had a prayer time on my own for years. God, forgive me for the times where I let everything else in my life interrupt those times where I should be in church humbling myself before the teaching of the Word. God, forgive me for being a husband that does not lead his wife. God, forgive me for being a wife that simply will not allow my husband to to lead. Folks, this is the stuff of genuine revival. 
There needs to be a mourning over sin. There needs to be a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And if this is you, then in brokenness of heart, you need to come before Almighty God and in great humility, pour out your life to Him. And let that laser-like penetration of His omniscience expose all of the garbage that is there. And get serious about your faith. And plead for a spiritual awakening. And beg Him for restoration of fellowship and power. And then, my friends, you will be alert and you will be ready and you will become more faithful and sensible as a servant of the Master. I, I share the Apostle Paul's burden in, in Philippians 2. We've been studying this on Wednesday nights. In verse 15, he, he, he prayed that for the people at Philippi that, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, in other words, when you stand before Him, so that in the day of Christ, I, referring to Pastor Paul or Pastor Harold, so that I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. And my friends, I must confess, for some of you, I fear I toil in vain. I fear I toil in vain. Oh, child of God, mark it down. The Master's coming. The rapture of the church can occur. You won't know when it'll happen. Despite where you might place it in the prophetic timetable, we don't, won't know the moment, the moment. The second coming, we'll not know. So we need to be alert. We need to be ready. We need to be faithful and sensible. And I hope that all of you will long to hear the Master say, as we read in chapter 25 of Matthew and verse 23, Well done. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your Master. What a day that will be. The many things of the kingdom that God will have for those who have been faithful to Him. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, thank You for, again, the truth of Your Word. Lord, we all stand before You as sinners. Some of us as sinners saved by grace and others condemned by it. Lord, I pray that if there be one here today that knows nothing of You as Savior, Lord, how I pray that somehow the conviction of their sin will overwhelm them to a point that they examine their heart and they cry out to You, for undeserved mercy and grace. And thank You that all that come to You, You will in no wise cast out. And Lord, for those of us who know and love You, I pray that we will all take seriously the prophetic words that we have heard. And I pray that we will all live in the light of Your imminent and glorious return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.